ourselves uh sure yeah I'll, i guess i'll go first so i'm uh i'm known wi- far and wide as Long gecko or just gecko um i am a united anarchist which is kind of my own breed of anarchism that kind of draws a lot from syn- synthesis anarchism and this is not my first go around with theory but i feel like it's a good place to get started all right and Cardin, you want to discuss what what uh, you introduce yourself and kind of tell you what, what your ideology is? Yeah, why the hell not? I'm Cardin Drakerav. Um, not so widely known, depending on who you ask. But um, this is exactly my second round with theory. With the first one just being the Communist Manifesto and also a life in retail. So that's that's kind of where I'm at with uh with all that fun stuff. Yeah, a life in retail is really the best theory you can get. Let's be real. Honestly, like <laughs> if, if if you've worked retail, you are you are become you, you go left. All right, so I'll get into my introduction before I give that anecdote. But um, I'm Confight. Uh, you can call me Con. I have a YouTube channel. I'm also a member of the Sig Marxism podcast, where we talk about. On there, we talk about Warhammer and leftist-related stuff, and here we're talking about anarchism and furries, so it's different. And this is the first time me kind of trying to host a podcast, and uh, we're, seeing where, we're seeing where it goes, so it'll be fun. So without further ado, if we want to get into, um, I believe, Gek, you had a kind of um, an intro into who Kropot- who was, who is Peter Kropotkin, and how is he important to the anarchist school of thought? Or the anarchist tradition. Should I take that hit now, or? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, just go ahead and smoke whenever you want, man. Who, who gives a shit? Just, fuck, just um, fucking, just t- ripping hits right now, just fucking blazing it. So, the, the I guess the biggest thing about Kropotkin is he was one of the fathers of anarchism. Um, and I call him the father of anarchism mostly because um, he was the main guy who took anarchism towards the path that it is currently, the, the scientific route. Um, and he kind of followed Marx in that desire um, because they, they were kind of the biggest people that took this you know general ideology and made it into a scientific route. Um, before, before Kropotkin and even Bakunin to some degree, um, the most anarchis- anarchism that you really saw was you know Proudhon and Godwin and both of them kind of, they, they kind of just sat down and just theorized a bunch of stuff. Didn't really, like, try to make any scientific claims. Um, but the biggest thing that I found when I was reading this intro into him was that Kropotkin was actually born a Prussian prince. Um, his family, the I'm quoting the, this copy, this PDF copy that I have here, um, specifically by, uh, edited by Marshall Schatz basically said that uh, Kropotkin's family uh, traced their ancestry back to the rulers of Solmsk, uh, one of the independent principalities of medieval Russia. So that's where he gets his princely name. And he kind of bounced around Kropotkin then between, you know, being personal page of Emperor Alexander II, uh, joining the Russian uh, military towards uh, the beginning of his life, and then after the 1880s, he became, uh, or a- not the, after the 1860s, he became kind of this anarchist. Um, quoting the book again, it said, reviewing his Siberian experience in his memoirs, he declared that by the time they ended, I was prepared to become an anarchist. Hmm. Um, 
through that, he beca- after being kicked out of Russia for a very for various reasons, um, Kropotkin joined the First International, which actually had Bak- Bakunin in it. But unfortunately, uh, the two anarchist ri- writers kind of missed their chance to meet each other. Um, but it wasn't he. He had been part of the Bakunin arm, but because Bakunin was ne- near his the winter of his years, they kind of really didn't have a chance to meet. It's really nice to think of uh, anarchism. Sorry, it's the first time I've really thought of it in this terms, but anarchism as predating fucking modern punk by centuries. Yeah, that, that mm-hmm. that's even the weird thing. Like um, when I was reading the preference to the one copy I had by Kent Bromley. He was talking about kind of um, a lot of older writers who are in the socialist tradition. And usually, like, you think of, like, Marx starts socialism and that's it. But he was really, there was more writers beforehand that were also doing things. And I thought that was very cool. Yeah, that's uh, that was a really fun, That I've seen a lot of facts that are not fun. This, this was a fact that was fun. <laughs> Well, and it's also really cool to find out that, you know, anarchy had always existed to kind of some degree, even back before a lot of the neoliberalist and the conservative movements. Um, I, I mean, I guess less conservatism because conservatism kind of started back pre-French Revolution because it was trying to conserve the, the monarchies. But yeah. Yeah, I, 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 there's that uh, this whole idea of like, you have the anarchist tradition that goes back to um, Kropotkin, Bakunin, and a little bit before that, like we were said with a couple of the other d- guys that kind of started this whole idea of socialism that kind of grew out of the Enlightenment, really. And then you have the, um, some people would say anarchism even goes back even further to basically the start of civilization. Some people would consider that to be, you know, true anarchism, which is kind of where the idea of, like, anarcho-primitivism comes from. I can see that. As long as there has been room for a bad king to come about, there's an origin for anarchism. That's very true. Yeah. Like, it only takes the one to get the ball rolling. Well, and I think, I, I think with Proudhon, Bakunin, and uh, Kropotkin specifically, anarchism grew into less of a specifically anti-state thing. And more of a social theory with, in how people can survive without, you know, Hobbes' Leviathan. Um, this idea that we have to give our rights up to a larger system just to protect protect our property. And I, I think with with Bakunin sitting down and going, hey, let's let's look at this scientifically through social theory, through economic theory, and how we can actually sit down and create this new system that he called anarchist communism without having to have this great force that's going to sit there and dictate our lives. Also, the word communism is loaded AF today. And it's like, just remember, there was a time before that. It hasn't always been a naughty word. Well, that's the thing, is that the context of communism today really stems back to the Soviet Union and McCarthyism in general, or even before then, like, I've seen people make the argument that, historically speaking, the Cold War really started after the Russian Revolution just because of how Amer- how the first Red Scare really solidified anti-communist propaganda in American society, which was suspended mostly during World War II, but really came back in force afterwards during what we consider usually the Cold War. But this idea of um, communism as totalitarian and authoritarian and uh, dictatorial is really what people get hung up on in the modern context, mostly due to propaganda and mostly due to um, people being disingenuous about really the origins of it, or no one actually know it, reading the theory, the only hearing um, that communism was bad because uh, the Soviet Union existed. Well, I, I would also like to point out that like the, the traditional idea, the, the traditional definition of the term communism as espoused by Marx, and I wouldn't necessarily call myself a communist or even a Marxist to be, to be specific, but to, to be very pedantic about it, the, the term communism was specifically a socialism i.e. the worker-owned workplaces that had that was moneyless, classless, and stateless. So in the beginning, communism, this, uh, this ideal, was an anarchist idea. 
Exactly, because anarchist is, is it's the antithesis of the state. I think also one of the biggest things that people get hung up with about anarchism is just the the idea of not having a state and then people being like the colloquial like idea that automatically without a state, like the purge is going to happen and there's no laws and there's no there's no humans are, are inherently evil and they will just riot if there's no laws. Or like if there's uh, no see if somebody says that then that says a lot about that somebody. Exactly. Exactly. It, it's like, what the fuck are you gonna do if there's no one to stop you? Well, it's the same. Damn. It's the same thing where it's like, if you, if no one sees you commit something, are you still gonna? If I, if no, if a cop's not uh, not around and I just straight up like shoot, does that mean I I can just straight up shoot someone and no one's around? I was just like, why is that the first thing that comes to your mind? There, come on now. Yeah, it's kind of like the people who are like, oh, you're a feminist, so I can punch you in the face, huh? You want me to punch you in the face, uh... like? Really, dude? Like, no, that's not that's not what the theory is. But do you, do you really want to just go around punching people in the face? Do you really want to go around just murdering people? Yeah, but we all know that anarchists are the ones that punch Nazis, so therefore they are the bad guys. Oh yeah, anarchists are totally the violent ones. <laughs> oh wait, no, I mostly get my means from anarchist circles, so of course they paint them the heroes. <laughs> so to to kind of start off with this. Um, just to kind of shift the thing at there, to kind of go into what this idea of um, anarchism is, this Kropotkin, Kropotkonian version of anarchism. Um, is Kropotkonian a word yet? If not, it should be. It probably is. Well, let's, let's make it. <laughs> we, we're making so, history, folks. We made Kropotkonian <laughs> a word. <laughs> yes! So the, 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 biggest thing that I, the biggest thing that I want to start, start off with was this idea of um, the what what went on to the preface of my copy. It basically goes one of the current objections of communism to communism and socialism altogether is that the idea is so old yet has never been realized. Schemes of ideal states haunted the thinkers of ancient Greece. Later on, the early Christians joined in the communist group. In communist groups, yeah. centuries later, large communist brotherhoods came into existence during the reform movement. Then the same ideals were revived during the great English and French revolutions, and finally, lately in 1848. A revolution inspired to a great extent with socialist ideals took place in France. And yet, you see, we are told, how far away is still the realization of your schemes? Don't you think that there is some fundamental error in your understanding of human nature and its needs? Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was um, the prep. That was the same one in mind, the preface about, uh, that was by Kent Bromley, I believe, in 1906. October 1906. Well... So here's here's the biggest thing that I want to point out is that even back in 1906, even back in 1906, we had this we had this objection to socialism and communism that well, what about human nature? This idea of well, humans are obviously super greedy, so we can't have this system without a without a state. Yeah, and it's. Sad to admit it, a valid point. Um, Sam has pointed out, um, Sam being my wonderful boyfriend, um, that the honor system is only good right up until someone decides to abuse it, and then everyone else wonders why they can't abuse it the same way. Yeah, well, and it's it's funny how you you discuss you know human human nature, and this is this is when we were talking in the in the pre-podcast, I would, Kropotkin actually discussed this in, in his book that came out after the, the Conquest of Bread uh, in Mutual Aid on how, you know, human nature actually doesn't really necessarily exist and even even evolution favors, you know, species that can work together. Yeah, he, t- he talks about it a little bit. It's it's almost like a common... I find it interesting because that was a common trope where it's like... <laughs> it's this idea of... Well, even if it is human nature, even if that is a naturalist argument, just because it's human nature does not mean it is necessarily a good thing. And just because people can overcome their nature, that is... If evolution is real, then how come there are still monkeys? Checkmate, uh, commune atheists. Jesus fucking Christ, now we have, uh, we have Kent Hoven on the pod now. (laughs) Kill myself. Kent Hovind is a is a creationist. He's kind of like um, I don't know if you know who Ken Ham is. Yeah. Okay. He's he's along that line. Uh, 
who incidentally also went to jail for mail fraud, but that's a whole nother story. Um, I mean, I kind of avoided, you know, looking too far into that whole atheist versus theist debate, and especially the um, creationists, um, just because it's like, this doesn't affect my life too much, and it's a lot of bad energy. See, I'm putting energy into this because this shit does affect my life yeah. and people I care about. It was probably smart of you to do that just because uh, it just rots your brain eventually because the arguments get so dumb and just so like pedantic that it just doesn't really matter at the end. It's just like, I don't. it doesn't matter. The last time I kept up with these circles, it was by watching Thunderfoot. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Nah. yeah so um anyways we were talking a little bit about um so he goes on in the preface to kind of talk about some of the things against communism and kind of talk about the occurrences since kropotkin since i believe kropotkin um this conquest of bread was written when was it written trying to remember uh let me look this up Cut this out of the font. Uh, Ken Brobley is, is kind of uh, talking about what happens afterwards with um, and kind of the context in which Conquest of Bread is written. He talks a lot about the thinkers of socialism beforehand, which is like Fabian socialism and kind of how Napoleon and the Napoleonic Wars changed things after the French Revolution. And he's talking about all of that. And then he also talks about the Revolution of 1848 in France. A lot of this is actually centered around Paris. And, and Prokotkin takes a long time to talk about Paris in what he's doing. So that's an interesting topic to discuss. Yeah, an initial reading actually gave me the sense that he either predated or was contemporary to Marx. And in particular, um, the writing of the Communist Manifesto. He was a little bit around drafting, that time. Draft. If I recall, he was a little bit later. Marx was, like, writing in the 1830s and died in 1860s. So Kropotkin was a little bit later because he was born in the 1840s and died uh, somewhere in the 1900s, if I recall correctly. Well, and it also it's also good to note that, you know, when Bakunin started becoming an anarchist, the, car, the Marx wing of the First International had already been ex- in existence for at least a decade or two. So... Yeah, and Bakunin did yeah, not like Marx. <laughs> oh no, he called he called them, and I'm actually quoting the I'm actually quoting the book book here. He called them the German state socialists. Yeah, he 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 did not like them, and he had a, I think he he eventually he he tried to link Marx to the Rothschilds, which actually Kropotkin does talk about in here, which is interesting, but he doesn't. And the problem with like the Rothschilds, the modern context is that it's so caught up in. Um, conspiracy theories and like illuminati stuff rather than like actual you know the rothschilds in reality were just someone who got super rich off of gaming the system and then just kept that wealth and we'll discuss that here in a little bit but anyway so going on to chapter one is our riches and we're talking about kind of um he starts it off by just basically talking about how far we've gone from the the beginning of human civilization up till the 19th century and kind of how much we've produced and how much things have been mechanized the industrial revolution and things of that nature and doing all things with that and then he's like all right so if we have all these riches and we have all this stuff then why are there poor people and that's what he really tries to get into and explain that's what anarchism i think at its whole is trying to Explain why, if we have an abundance of wealth, why is it centered in only certain people? Which is very true, especially in today's day and age with the rise of neoliberalism and um, just global capitalism as opposed to simply uh, state capitalism and uh, more, more or less doing capitalism on using the world scale as Capitalism without borders is essentially what it is, as opposed to trading between countries, which is what capitalism back in the 19th century was for the most part, besides of some of the colonial conquests of um, different territories, but that was colonialism. So it's the idea of like neocolonialism where it's you still strip the resources of the place that you are colonizing 
However, you do not actually invade them or conquer them specifically. So that's kind of where how colonialism has moved on to the modern day. And he's talking about and a lot of the things that he talks about with um, why are there poor people or exist to are are very relevant to today. So if you want to talk a little bit about that, where he's saying, um... I mean, some people, then a lot of capitalists would probably should uh, read some of Kropotkin because he straight up explains why there's poor people. And, you know, I, I know some capitalists, I know an ANCAP, I think we all know, <laughs> um, who literally had the attitude of, <laughs> if you, you know, if this was your concern, why did you choose to be a peasant? Well, this is this is the thing. Um, it's the idea of the capitalist idea is you you choose to be poor. You're not if you're born poor and you can't make it in the system. That is your fault rather than a systemic issue. And the anarchist perspective is the reason why people are rich is because they're exploiting the poor. There is always going to be if there is rich people, there is always poor people. And that's the thing. Like as an anarchist, we are going to first fight the boss. Then we're gonna fight the government. That's the thing, yeah. Where it's like, um, I mean, the state as a whole is really the thing that keeps all the status quo together because that's what the state does. It's a whole idea of maintaining capitalism and maintaining private property. Those are the two things the state does. And so it wants to maintain the status quo, wants to keep everything the same and then just tell you that the system is good and you should just shut up about all your grievances because how we're doing it is just fine and just peachy. And so... But it ain't. Exactly. Exactly. That's where people get this false sense of complacency. Um, to get to put some context behind that earlier remark, uh, we actually kind of formed this podcast after we were in a Telegram group with a bunch of other kind of furries and, you know, people. And I think when... Was he really a furry? He claim he claims that he's been ch- um, chased out of the fur- furry fandom because of so much socialism or something like that. Did I bully him out of the furry fandom? You weren't. No, you, he, you, he, it was. You weren't even that mean to awesome. him. Like there was like. Uh, I wasn't that mean to him. No, like compared to some of the things that you know. Well, compared uh, to some of the things that he other... said, like all right. So before before we before we get into that talk. Um, <laughs> So basically, there was a guy by the name of gentleman by the name of Rasa who was an ANCAP who could not get past the idea that people were poor not because of their um, laziness but because of their own devices. That was something that like he could not understand, and just because he said, "Well, I worked my way up from being poor, therefore anyone can do it," despite making literally all of his money off of luck through Bitcoin. Exactly, he was he got lucky. That's the thing. A lot of capitalists say that they did it through skill and hard work and pulling up their bootstraps, but the problem is is that they're taking at only if we look at it this always from a scientific perspective, they're taking a biased sample group and then extrapolating out that out to the population. We don't know how many people uh, start businesses and they fail miserably and then they're destitute and then they die. That's not taken into account. It's only I made it so you can make it too, which is kind of true, but it's a lot of luck and it's a lot of um, just random chance. There's not you gotta roll a lot of 20s. Exactly. You got to be born in the right place. You got to do the right things. And you kind of also have to be very cutthroat about it. Because if you're not, then you're not going to make it in capitalism. That's the thing. Well, and, and Kropotkin even goes over this. Like, he doesn't directly look, point to, you know, the. He doesn't directly point to the capitalists and say, oh, it's your fault. I mean, in, in, in a roundabout way, he kind of does. But, like, he even says, millions of human beings have labored to create the civilization in which we pride ourselves today. Other millions scattered throughout the globe. Made it, labor to maintain it. Without them, nothing would be left in fifty years. No, nothing would be left in fifty years, but ruin. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll just make sure. Do we we did get through the whole explanation of who the fuck Rasa is? Uh, I think. Well, I think we did. Uh, uh, if we if we didn't, Rasa is a Bitcoin uh, miner and quote unquote business connoisseur who does not. Uh, I mean, he 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 always keeps. Th- he has this idea that basically Bitcoin will be lead to Ancapistan and the uh, the dissolution of the state for the keeping of capital, which 
makes no sense because you can't have capitalism without a state. Basically, what he's arguing for is not anarchy and statelessness. He's arguing for states in corporate statehood over like corporate personhood is what he's really arguing for. He wants to have corporations be able to make their own state and be able to enforce their own property. Well, in 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 fear of you know making this. T- in fear of making this too much about a singular straw man that is Rasa, and, I, and I'm not calling the, the argument like we're not making a straw man. Like he literally makes these arguments. Like he yeah, is. Yeah, no, this guy is like. He, if you wanted to make a straw man argument against um, Ancaps. An Ancap, you would compare them to Rasa. Yeah, furry Ancaps <laughs> are uh, some of the worst people. Like um, you have uh, what was it? Esoteric entity. And then uh, Filthy Heretic also, like, those are some of the big two on YouTube, and even then they're pretty small, and they like to really, um, Filthy Heretic. Goth Skunk, don't forget about that asshole. Yeah, there's there's a couple out there that have really, and this sort of this, one of the things you have to get off the table is um, explaining ANCAP. That one shark. Anarcho-capitalism is not in the same vein as something like anarcho-syndicalism syndicalism or anarcho-communism and anarchism in general and that whole theory like people like Kropotkin uh fundamentally disagree with someone like ANCAP. ANCAP uses uses mostly the colloquial definition of anarchy where there's just no government no regulations hyper um really a a sort of a hyper libertarianism is really the best way to describe it and it's the atheoretical version of anarchism. Exactly. It's it's a it, it's it's almost like the uh, exactly. And so, but what it really is is the in ANCAP, in their ideology, there's still capitalism. And of course, since capitalism cannot exist without the state, well, how do you still have capitalism? Because you have to realize that markets are not the same as a state, or of markets are not the same as capitalism, and that is a fundamental and- difference. Yeah, Marcus is- yeah, it's like, we're going to be back to the barter system, and that is most definitely not capitalism. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. Because there's, there's mutual trust involved, and it's actually voluntary con- uh, participation. Exactly. It's not, um, Unlike capitalism. markets have existed long before capitalism. Markets have existed long before mercantilism, which was like proto-capitalism, a little, in a sense. But it was different. And mercantilism died off but markets still go on and capitalism will hopefully die off and markets will still go on it's the same idea people get so hung up on this idea that without uh capitalism there would be no markets and or there would be no trade and that's just incorrect and this ancap ideology takes that and basically says well, how are we going to support private property and have all this stuff in an anarchist system you make a state out of corporations you have corporations whoever has the most money gets to decide who the most state is really what it is it's mask off uh it's it's, it's like the cyberpunk future sure we yeah. got robot parts but you know stady is also the boss we cry shame on the feudal baron who pro- forbade the peasant to turn a clod of earth unless he surrendered his lord a fourth of his crop we called those barbarous times but if the forms have changed the relations have remained the same and the worker is forced, under the name of free contract, to accept feudal obligations. For a turn where he will, he can find no better conditions. Everything has become private property, and he must accept or die of hunger. Exactly. And this is what someone like Rasa could not understand when we tried to tell him. That there's this idea of coerced... Um, even though, if you want to have a system based off of consent and mutual consent, coerced consent exists. And under the current system, especially if you have money, or if, like, Kropotkin go, really goes into this, I think, more in um, Chapter 3, which we'll get to. But this whole idea of, under our system, because people's wealth is going straight to the top, they are coerced to work for less because they have to survive, because they need food, and they need water, and they need to feed their family. They want to, or they even, yeah, basically, they, they need to have basic human uh, functions and rights, and they want to have, be able to live. So that uh, is where it comes from. I should say, it's like, this This runs into a little bit of, like, ideology, or personal ideology, but, like, in any situation, coerced consent is most definitely not coerced, con- or is, is not consent. It, it's 100% not consent, because you can, 
coerced consent, uh, really, like in a sexual tense, is is rape. You you would say that almost nine, ten times out of ten. Like it's the idea of well, why is incest bad? Well, incest is bad because if you grow up with someone and you have that relationship and then you have sex, it's co- there's still that coerce because you have someone who is older than someone else still trying to or like has some influence over someone else trying to have a sexual relationship that's why there's a difference between incest where it's like oh my brother and my sister uh, me and my wife are both adopted and then we have sex oh wait uh we find out we're related Uh uh-oh that really is not as bad as something like say you know, we grew up together and then we had sex because that is more of coerced consent versus just um, having a consensual relationship and then finding out that you're genetically related. That's very different. Manufacturing consent by Chomsky, anyone? Yeah, exactly. Um, So to kind of wrap up this chapter, chapter one, he talks about all for all. That is his main thing. Where he kind of goes against the... He, he has an interesting thing where he goes against the idea that all, a man for his labor... He says, no, that's not enough. What we need is all for all. Everyone should have everything. We should all have the fruits of all of our labors. Yeah, and the, the, exact, the exact quote is, all things for all. Here is the immense stock of tools and implements. Here are all these iron slaves, which we call machines which saw and plane, spin and weave for us, unmaking and remaking, working up raw matter produced the marvels of our time. But nobody has the right to seize a single one of these machines and say, this is mine. If you want to use it, you must pay me a tax on each of your products. Any more than the feudal lord of medieval times had the right to say to the peasant, this hill, this meadow belonged to me. You must pay me a tax on every sheaf of corn you reap, on every rick you build. All is for all. If the man and woman bear their fair share of work, they have the right to their fair share of all that is produced by all, and that share is enough to secure them well-being. No more of such vague formulae as the right to work, or to each the, resu- the whole result of his labor. What we proclaim is the right to well-being, well-being for all. That's what I find hilarious, is like, even in um, this wording, uh, with the current uh, hegemony that we have of neoliberalism, the right to work and having right to work states... It's very draconian that they're using that same terminology that still, it hasn't changed since 100, 150 years ago. That's what I find so crazy about that quote. And when I first read it, I was like, whoa. Yeah, that kind of messed me up a little bit. I had to read through that one a few times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a very hard concept to come to. But the basic idea is, it reminds me of an argument I was having with my family about uh, kind of socialism. And the idea of, well, ideas are valuable. And ideas, uh, you're, the, the reason why socialism will never work is because you just don't value ideas enough. And I think our thing is the idea that usually when you have an idea, it is going to be based off of your other people's ideas. In the- well, it's branching, it's branching into the literary theory that, you know, there is no such thing as originality. Like, even, exactly. the, even our modern... Even our modern um, stories are based off of the the hero's journey which was invented back in the 2000s bc and even prior to that it's just we're telling the same story over and over again but with more and more nuance everything is a remix yeah basically and so therefore since no one really has an original idea you can't really have um you can't really have ownership over an idea so therefore why not say we all worked as a collective for this idea and as a collective for this work so we should all get to share in the profits and that's fair and and he actually goes into this in chapter two well-being for all well-being for all is not a dream it is possible realizable owing to that our owing to all that our ancestors have done to increase our powers of production we know that we know indeed that the producers, although they constitute hardly one third of the inhabitants of civilized countries, even now produce such quantities of goods that a good certain degree of comfort could be brought to every hearth. We know that we know further that if all of all those who squander to, squander today, the fruits of others' toil were first to employ their leisure in useful work, our wealth would increase in proportion to the number of producers and more. Finally, we know that the contrary to the theory announced enunciated by Malthus. 
that oracle of middle class and economics, that productive powers of the human race increase at a much more rapid ratio than its powers of reproduction. Yeah, and then he goes on to uh, own Malthus, because Malthus is just the dunking board which everyone hates, because he's a dumbass. <laughs> well, because his entire idea was basically what Swift argued for, but not ironically. Yeah, exactly. Like, he, he, he basically sat down and was like, you know what would be really good? Because we have all these poor people, let's just kill them. Just, just kill them. No, no more problems. And that was something that Swift was like, hey, yeah, it was like... Swift, the father of satire, sat down and was like, yeah, you know, let's do this as a joke. And Malthus was like, yeah, that's actually a good idea. Like, what the heck? Well, it's it, it, Malthus really reminds me of this idea of extrapolating things out based on the current data and not really taking into effect that that data can change. Can change. Like, it's like the, the thing where people were talking about, uh, it, there was a study done. It's like treating the human human nature as a constant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, uh, there was a study done in the 90s that looked at uh, female marathon runners, and then they extrapolated it out because they were getting faster and faster and faster and faster, and they're like, oh man, soon they'll surpass the male marathoners, and they'll go even more. But their issue with that is like, if you take that um, model they were using uh, and extrapolate it out, like eventually they would be running like faster than the speed of light by like the 2020s or something stupid like that. It was starting to get like really, like they would just go extremely fast. What ended up happening is that the female marathon runners ended up plateauing around the same time as the male marathon runners because there's only a in the certain the um, physiological context of today there's only really a certain um, time you can really run a marathon and that's really what ended up happening is people didn't expect that they were just like oh it's going to keep going up keep going up keep going up and the reason why it was going up was because women weren't able to really use running as a career up until early 70s 80s 90s and um this gender revolution and this is and this is another point like it actually even ties into a um another another theory called the decline of the rate of profit and this this is a paper that was basically talking about how you know liberals and capitalists constantly try to look towards this ever increasing rate of profit thinking that profit's ultimately infinite but we're seeing now in our in late stage capitalism that there's only so much profit you could squeeze out of the working class before everything starts to break down yeah it's like money is not inexhaustible and you need to put fuel back into the car you can't just drive it forever well this is like this is like why someone like uh fukuyama with the end of history why he is basically the malthus of our time by saying you know we are at the end of history this ideology is superior and you know nothing's gonna change we are stagnant we have already won we're at the end of ideology and he was completely fucking wrong because he could not understand that, like, he fell fat on, flat on his face after 2001 uh, and 9-11 and also 2008, especially during 2008 and the financial crash because we realized that neoliberalism is just a boom and bust cycle. Once you have all this profit, it has to go down. Mm -hmm. And I, I, this is actually one of my critiques of Kropotkin. And ironically, like, even Rasa brought this up when he was, when he started reading the book, that, you know... We a lot of a lot of these idealists are sitting here and extrapolating based off current projections, which is fair, because like e even even Kropotkin had said, thousands of weavers are forbidden to work the looms, although although the wives and children go in rags, and although three quarters of the population of Europe have no clothing worthy of the name, hundreds of blast furnaces, thousands of factories periodically stand idle, others only work half time, and in every civilized nation there is a permanent population of two million individuals who only ask only for work, but to whom work is denied. I mean that that does happen though, because you think about um, what is it the how a lot of places are doing everything they can to make sure that their workers stay part time only. Well, but he's more talking about how, going back to the the previous quote, how you know if everybody just produced, then all would be good. But this is you can't have everybody producing all the time because there comes a point where every everybody's needs is everybody's needs are produced, and this is kind of like a positive for a command economy in that if you only produce exactly what is needed then not everybody needs to work all the time. And this kind of branches into work, into post-work theory that we don't really want to get into here. A um, system wherein the people own the means of production. Um, automation would lead to 
more vacation time as opposed to mass layoffs. Yeah, and that, that's kind of branching into post-work theory, which I don't think we want to get into in the, the very first podcast, because that's some some very deep theory stuff. We could, we could talk about our Lord and Savior, Andrew Yang, at a later date. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I, I, and I think Kropotkin was trying to dance around this idea that the issue that he's seeing, especially with the capitalism of his day, is not that people aren't people aren't producing but that people aren't allowed to produce the things that they need they're not able to sit down and be like hey there's this loom that's not being used i need clothes why can't i go get go make clothes by myself and it's because this capitalist is sitting down saying no that's my loom either pay me for the time you know money that you don't have because i'm not going to pay you to use it or you know go buy your own loom i'm just reminded of the uh situation uh please spend or yeah please spend no wage, only spend deal. But that's kind of getting back to the idea of specialization and whether or not specialization is a good thing. Where it's like, if you only work to, for what you need, you know, that's great. But if you want to specialize in something and then use that labor to try to get other goods and services for other people that are specialized in it, is that a good thing? Or does that lead to uh, people monopolizing the means of production? That's a really big question, and I don't think that specialization is necessarily a bad thing. I think the problem is, like, for me, I'm, I'm more of a demsock in, in this respect. I believe that markets, I believe that there should be some markets involved in a system, but you can not have markets when it involves things like human life, like in healthcare, like in um shelter food water you should not commodify those things because that is just going to lead to uh basically people being blackmailed to work so if you have people getting all the things that they need and then producing whatever commodities they want or consuming whatever commodities are produced i think that makes for a good system that's a little bit less anarchist than than um i think some of the other people in this group but that's just my idea i dig it well it, it, it's not necessarily not anarchist, but it is it is a decent point to bring up that we do have this increased commodification, and I don't think Kropotkin actually mentions this in the in the section of the book that we're reading. Um, he might mention it later, but he he's pretty much he's pretty much arguing uh, uh, on the on the further side of well, let's just make everybody be able to use everything all the time that he calls expropriation um there he says if plenty for all is to become a reality this immense capital cities houses pastures are arable lands factories highways education must cease to be regarded as private property for the monopolist to dispose of at his pleasure this rich endowment painfully won builded fashioned or invented by our ancestors must become common property so that the collective interests of men may gain from it the greatest good for all. There must be expropriation, the well-being of all, the end, and expro expropriation, the means. Expropriation, such then, is the problem which history has put before the men of the 20th century, the return to communism, and all that ministers to the well-being of man. So basically what he's talking about, he's really anti the enclosure movement and that sort of thing, the idea of the commons and... Uh, that's something that can be communally owned. And even like nowadays, um, we've seen really, um, I remember in uh, 2012 during the Gezi protests in Turkey, uh, that was one of the biggest things that the idea of what um, Erdogan was trying to do there was turn a park into a shopping mall. And that's kind of what the, the neoliberalism is, where it's taking public land that is used for the public good and is there and turning it into private land for product. And that's really what he's going against. And, and this and this theme really actually started with Proudhon, which is why he is considered the grandfather, grandfather of the anarchist movement, because he took this idea of, well, the enclosure acts are the bad thing. This is what is causing this issue that we're seeing today, at least in his time, the, this this creation of private property, this taking of the communal ownership of things, and people always try. I've always seen arguments, 
especially against this of oh well what about the the tragedy of the commons where you know people just keep using the commons and using it and using it until it's all used up and it kind of it kind of ignores the fact that a lot of these people had existed on common land for centuries and this had never really happened like as far as i'm aware and i again i will if if anybody can find evidence to this as far as i i will you know sit down and talk about it as far as I'm aware, there is no actual evidence of the tragedy of the commons actually happening in non-state stated societies. It's only when we have this enclosure act that this starts happening because the commons starts becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. And then you get back into tribalism. Yeah. Hmm. Well, so so Kropotkin continues about this about this expo- expropriation, and he this is where we start seeing the revolutionary side of Kropotkin. He, he actually says that, you know, this problem cannot be solved by means of legislation. No one imagines that. The poor, as well as the, as well as the rich, understand that neither the existing government nor any which might arise out of possible political changes which w- would be capable of finding such a solution. Whence will the revolution come? How will it announce its coming? No one can answer these questions. The future is hidden. But those who watch and think do not misinterpret the signs. Workers and explorers... Revolutions and conservatives, thinkers and men of action, will fill the revolutions at our doors. And this kind of this kind of echoes Marx in his whole idea of dialectical materialism. Yeah. In the the, the struggle of the the class struggle, right? You no, know, the worker versus the capitalist. Took that for granted that um, there was some revolution in there, because I don't know. I, I just kind of assumed that I associated anarchism with fuck shit up. So I was like, if there was an anarchist back then. He's probably fucked shit up. <laughs> well, and even Kapotkin has talk, talked about this. We have all been bent on the studying studying the dramatic side of revolution so much, and the practical work of revolution so little, that we are apt to see only the stage effects, so to speak, of these great movements. The fight of the first days, the barricades, but this fight, this first skirmish, is soon ended, and it is only after the breakdown of the old system that the real world of work of revolution can be said to begin. And I like to think that he, in this in this specific uh, phrase he's not talking about oh well we can't be violent or he's not even talking about oh well we have to be violent revolutionaries he's talking about how people focus so much especially modern anarchists or at least a theoretical anarchists they talk so much about how about what to do during the revolution we forget what to do after the revolution and that that's as far as I'm aware, that, that's the entire endeavor that the conquest of bread is going on. And he doesn't really start um, talking about what actually happens after the after the revolution until chapter three. But he but he's constantly hinting at this. Well, you know, we need to revolt. We need to do this because what the system that we currently have isn't working yeah. and we can't just legislate it away. He almost skips over the revolution because he kind of talks about the pre-revolution of, well, how did we get to this point? And how do we get to this time? And then chapter three, as we'll probably go on to here in just one moment, he goes even further and then says, um, you know, this is what we do after the revolution. He almost skips over it. He's like, the, what happens during the revolution almost doesn't matter. It, what's, it's what happens, why we need to have it, and what we can't do to have a revolution, and what, what we will, what revolution, how revolutions fail. And maybe for fuck's sake, do not Im- do an impersonation of the state. Yeah, he he actually later before the end of the chapter he actually even says, "All this may please those who like the stage, but it is not revolution. Nothing has been accomplished as yet." And he's even talking about even during the revolution, even after the rulers and these expropriators are tossed, violently, non-violently, what have you, in this revolution out of their out of their stays, you know. That is not what we're focusing on. We, we're we not... Because if we focus so much on the revolution, meanwhile the people suffer. The factories are idle, the workshops closed, trade is at a standstill. The worker does not even earn the meager wage which was his before. Food goes up in price. With that her- heroic devotion which has always characterized them, and which, and, which, and which in great cities reaches the sublime, the people will wait patiently. We place these... These three months of want at the service of the Republic, they said in 1848, during the Second French Revolution, while the representatives and the gentlemen of the new government, down to the meanest jack in office, received their Saturday regularly. The people suffer. 
With the childlike faith and the good humor of the masses who believe in their leaders, they think that yonder, in the house, in the town hall, in the committee of public safety, the welfare is being considered. But yonder, they are discussing everything under the sun except the welfare of the people. That's kind of what I find funny about that is it's almost like uh, Kropotkin's taking a dig at Castro from beyond the beyond the the veils of time because that, like Castro's idea of, of revolutionary theater and really playing up the revolution itself, while at the expense really of sometimes of the Cuban people and kind of um, not really do well. He was really doing a lot of revolutionary theater rather than a lot of. Uh, Re- actual revolution and then afterwards he kind of became more of an authoritarian and, and really rooted out the anarchist elements within his own party that had really helped too because the cuban revolution was very very anarchist but they were really weeded out afterwards by more of the tanky um communists and that sort of thing leftist infighting we saw this again in the spanish civil war earlier in the spanish civil war and, and this is actually a, a good point to discuss how, you know, anarchy, or at least revolution, if you, if you, to achieve revolution through violent means, you will always have violence that perpetuates itself after the revolution is over. Because whoever is leading it, whoever the people rally around during the violent revolution, they will look to that person after the revolution and be like, hey, so what do we do now? And that person will often try to hold on to that power. And as much as I try to stand for Cuba, we, we still see that a lot of the early Cuban movement, at least in terms of post-revolution uh, building of the society, we see a lot of this very violent authoritarian regime. Like We see that we had a lot of LGBT people locked up. We had a lot of you know anarchists locked up. We had a lot of people who were just you know kind of minimally critical of the state locked up all because we're, we're seeing that this so this violent social revolution is trying to maintain its power it's almost like the state and the consolidation of power yes and that sort of thing um let's just let's just wrap up with the with the final with the third part of chapter uh two and discuss you know our end thoughts of the intro into what is anarcho-communism and we'll end up uh next chapter going into what happens after the revolution all right sounds good all right let's rock well as we see that kropotkin is talking about you know we can't just look for look towards uh the state legislative way and we can't necessarily just uh sit there and idolize the the revolution itself we have to look forward towards you know what what to do after the revolution and he even says it seems that to us there's only one answer to this question how is the question being how is a way out of these difficulties to be found he says we must recognize and loudly proclaim that everyone whatever his grade in the old society whether whether strong or weak capable or incapable has before everything the right to live and that society is bound to share amongst all without exception the means of existence it has at his disposal. We must acknowledge this and proclaim it aloud and act upon it. And this right here actually sets the stage for what he's going to be talking in later chapter, talking about in later chapters, uh, specifically his idea of anarcho-communism. Yeah, the, the next chapter is just anarcho-communism, anarchist communism. So that's that's kind of he's setting the stage for what he believes um, communism to be and what he believes anarchism and communism can go hand in hand. He makes that very mm-hmm. clear in chapter three, but uh, uh, he straight up implied that anarchism leads to uh, communism or vice versa. Yeah, like they're they're not they don't just go together; they are almost inherently the same. Oh well, yeah, in, in, cha- mm-hmm. in chapter three, he says that explicitly. It's not even implicitly; it's just explicit. This idea almost is the idea of, goes back to the idea of, like, social justice, and this is almost proto-social justice, where it's the idea of everyone has a right to life, everyone has a uh, right to um, their, whatever is needed to live, and Are everyone... Are you telling me social justice is older than I assumed? Yeah, it's pretty a, much. Pr- pretty much. It's, it, I mean, this is like, 
the label is about as old as you think it is. And modern day, modern day, the idea of the SJW and the social justice warrior is really a caricature of the social justice movement in general and generally more rabid um, people. It's more like neoliberal social justice, which really is I mean, not... shit, I don't mind being a social justice warrior. Call me social justice war machine, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think one of the biggest things... And to kind of wrap up the end of the chapter is that Kropotkin actually makes this distinction between things like the right to work, the right to live, and the right to well-being. He says very different would be the very different would be the result if workers claimed the right to well-being. In claiming that right, they claim the right to take possession of the wealth of the community, to take houses to dwell in according to the needs of each family, to socialize the stores of food and learn the meaning of plenty after having known famine too well. They proclaim the right to all social wealth, fruit of the labor and of past and present generations, and learn by its means to enjoy those higher pleasures of art and science, which have too long been monopolized by the rich. And while asserting their right to live in comfort, they assert what is, all st- what is still more important, their right to decide for themselves what this comfort shall be, what must be produced to ensure it, and what discarded as no longer of value the right to well-being means the possibility of living like human beings and of bringing up children to be members of the society better than ours whilst the right to work only means the right to always be a wage slave a drudge rolled over and exploited by the middle class of the future the right to well-being is the social revolution the right to work means nothing but the treadmill of commercialism it is high time for the worker to assert his right to the common inheritance and to enter into possession of it. So what we're saying here is that Kropotkin is actually a neat, and he's making saying, don't be a wage slave. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Why would you say that, though? <laughs> well, I had to make the point because, like, wage slave, like, nowadays is, like, with, like, basement dweller, like, alt-right people. And, like, it's just funny to think about, like, Kropotkin back in the day just being a neat, just being, like, oh, man, why are you going to work for, for, why are you being such a cuck and going to work, you see? You're a wage slave. You're a wage cuck, obviously. Well, and... And I think it's actually a good disti- good thing to note that you know, a lot of a lot of socialist theorizers and, and even Kropotkin came from a lot of these um, better the, these better well these more well off uh, societies. And he even mentions that back and to kind of do a callback. He even mentions this back in chapter two, where chapter chapter one, education still remains the privilege of a small minority. For his idle talk of education when the workman's child is forced at the age of 13 to go down into the mine or to help his father on the farm. It is idle to talk of studying to the worker who comes home in the evening worried by excessive toil and and its brutalizing atmosphere. Society is thus bound to remain divided into two hostile camps, and in such conditions freedom is a vain word. The radical begins by demanding a greater extension of political rights, and he soon sees that the breadth of liberty leads to the uplifting of the proletariat, and he mean and then he turns round, changes his opinions, and reverts to the repressive legislation of government by the sword. And th- this is actually, it's kind of right to call uh, Kropotkin a neat because he, even though he did work for the crown, and even he, even though he was part of you know the military force, he was still really well off compared to most of the workforce of that day exactly i mean that that's the whole idea um it's almost like the the comic idea of socialism where it's like oh man you just you just live in your mother's basement and you want free money that idea as opposed to um you know what socialism actually is and i think mm-hmm. that, that that it's it's a common misconception and especially in this day and age when with automation and um Again, like we said, we're not going into uh, the idea of uh, UBI and stuff in this this uh, pod, but well, it's that whole um, context. I do think I do think at a later at a later date we do need to go over oh, um, okay. post work theory because that is a very pivotal to modern socialist theory, mostly because it discusses automation and what to do in the face of automation when labor isn't necessary 
th- that's going to wrap us up probably for this week. Uh, that was chapters one and two of The Conquest of Dread by Peter Kropotkin. Uh, like, com- well, I, I don't even want to say like, comment, and subscribe because I don't know. Like, comment, and subscribe. Smash that like <laughs> Send a- button. Give us money on our Patreon, people. Ugh. <laughs> oh, we have a Patreon. <laughs> well, let, let, well, before before we actually wrap up, we got a couple minutes before you know we got, all got to get kicked out. Um, let, let's let's go over like our basic uh, overview of our impression, a basic overview of our impressions of you know the first couple chapters of the Conquest of Bread, what we thought it was going to be, what it ended up being, and you know so forth. I honestly didn't go in there with expectations. Nice, <laughs> like at all. <laughs> okay, here's the one expectation that it blew me a little bit away with a few it was like some modern concepts that i just took for granted as being a uh a cultural phenomenon of, of the uh 20th century date back a couple more centuries it's just like well a little bit exaggerated you get the idea it's just yeah. like whoa they were doing it that's what i found most interesting is that a lot of the arguments he's arguing against are actually arguments that i've heard very very often in this day and age because we're returning to basically that same context of liberalism that's what neoliberalism is is we're going back to the old context of classical liberalism except this time with more globalization that's the new neoliberals yeah that's my contrapoints impression I, I will actually be honest, having had read Mutual Aid, A Factor, Revolu- a Factor in Evolution by Kropotkin before actually reading A Conquest of Bread, like a lot of what he's talking about in these first couple chapters of The Conquest of Bread were expanded upon quite deftly in Mutual Aid. And I think the next book, the next book that we should read is Mutual Aid just to kind of bring, round out the Kropotkin theory. Yeah, I, I was thinking either either next book was going to be Mutual Aid or something by Bakunin, just because uh, mm-hmm. doing a different author and kind of taking his take on stuff in his different context. And then we'll go into maybe more modern stuff or maybe other other pieces and talk also. So when are we going to do some like really basic shit and, you know, do the Communist Manifesto on this cast? I don't think we need to do that. Communist, <laughs> Communist Manifesto, honestly... Um, the issue with the Communist Manifesto is it's really not the best work to get into something like communism or, or socialism or like even especially anarchism. But Oh yeah, no, it's definitely anti-anarchist. Yeah, yeah but, no, um, it, is, it is pretty steady. I, I will say that my impressions of this book, um, coming from Mutual Aid, like he actually, he seems a little more radical in The Conquest of Bread than he did in Mutual Aid. Like in Mutual Aid, it was kind of like, it, it felt very... I, I want to say sterile, because in con- in mutual aid he was coming at this from a very scientific standpoint. He he basically wrote that book like a scientific article, whereas the conquest of bread it feels very it, it's a lot more impassioned. Um, this is more the the book for the common man rather than for the scientist. Yeah, it, it's it's presenting you know Kropotkin's ideals of what is based on mutual aid to. You know the the worker who doesn't really have the chance to to sit there and study theory for decades at a time, or the thirteen year old who doesn't really understand the much about what's going on in the world besides oh I have to go to work to make sure that I'm still living. Yeah, this is this is kind of I, I believe on, on my other podcast we talked about in Sig Marxism we we're talking about the difference between. Um, people working class people who have to go to work and then also kind of want to get into socialism and then more of like the there's a bit of an elitism within academia about socialism because it's like oh if you want to be a socialist you have to read all the literature and you have to do all this stuff and hopefully especially like that's our goal with this pod is we're trying to get this pod and bring it to the everyday people i mean if that's the case for socialism then you it's going to be a real bitch to be a capitalist too (laughs) yeah yeah, it's like, you know, oh, you don't count as a capitalist if you haven't read all of the capitalist theory. If you haven't read all of Atlas Shrugged, then you can't be a capitalist. <laughs> well, and, and like you said, like that's that's what we're trying to do with this podcast. We're trying to take these very dense theory books and you know make it more accessible to the average person. Because I'm going to be honest, like even when I was reading Proudhon like years ago, like it took me. I, I'm a fast reader. It took me months just to get through uh, What is Property. Months. And that book is like two, three hundred pages long. Jesus. 
Yeah, it, it it is some dense stuff, and a lot of that's what a lot of this even anarchist theory, like the highbrow stuff, it's very dense. So to to for us to sit down and bring it to a lot more common folk, I feel like it will make a lot this a lot of this theory a lot more accessible. Just one final thing I wanted to touch on the second part of the podcast: What does anarchism have to do with furries, and why do you think it is important to the furry community? That's going to be fun. I probably shouldn't get high next time. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Well, anyways, go everybody who's listening, you know, we might set up a Patreon, who knows? All we probably two of won't. <laughs> yeah, all all two of us. Um go ahead and if you find us on, you know, whatever podcast site you're listening to, you know, give us give us a like, you know, share it with your friends. Uh we might post this to uh I think we just post it to anything, but yeah, you know. I'm probably gonna post it to YouTube. We'll make a SoundCloud. We'll do uh, maybe on iTunes. We'll see. Like and subscribe and hit that bell. I'm high. Oh, wow.